0: we often have this thing of like, is it more funding or is it dismantle? Like, which one is it? As if that's like a binary, like they're mutually exclusive. When I think an abolitionist approach would say, you know, we need to pump funding and resource into completely transformed approaches, community controlled approaches, non-carceral approaches. Um, And the question of more resource or dismantling, like it's both, like we can do both at the same time.
1: to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Misha Fraser-Carroll about her new book, Mad World, and why we need to repoliticise our understanding of mental illness, mental health and madness. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that I have taken the last few weeks off. Um, I just wanted to take a bit of time to reset and rest after what was a busy few weeks. Um, and for a little bit of planning and reading for forthcoming episodes. From now on I'll be getting back to weekly episodes and there's some really good ones in the pipeline so I hope you subscribed and I hope you enjoy them. I do read medicine around a full-time day job which can make the schedule a little bit tricky at times but I just wanted to say how much I appreciate everyone who listens and engages with the podcast and the discussions uh, and I appreciate your patience. And so for this episode, as I said, we're lucky enough to have Misha Fraser-Carroll here to talk about her work on the many various ways we might make sense of madness and mental illness. Misha is a columnist at The Independent and has previously edited for places like Galdem, The Guardian and Blueprint. She's also written for Vogue, HuffPost, Hook and Dazed and was nominated for the Common Awards Fresh New Voice of the Year Award and the Observer Anthony Burgess Award for Arts Criticism. And you may also recognise her from the previous episode as she was one of the speakers at Illness, the Red Medicine event that took place a couple of weeks ago. In this conversation we cover a lot of different topics, including the problematic nature of awareness discourse and its relationship to the rise of austerity politics, as well as the task of bringing together a variety of political discourses to repoliticise mental health. Discourses such as anti-psychiatry, disability justice, trans and queer politics, prison abolitionism, and the politics of neurodiversity. We also talk about some of the complexities in building solidarity across these different struggles and the conflicting models they provide in making sense of our experience of different psychic states and why that might not be such a problem in the end after all. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, you can do so in a couple of different ways. One of them is by signing up for a £1 a month donation using the link in the description. You could also rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, you can share this or other episodes on social media and with people who you think might enjoy the podcast. So thank you again, and on to the conversation with Misha.
2: So I think the best place to start would be maybe to ask you a little bit about the approach you're taking with the book and you're sort of pulling together lots of different discourses and the sort of different institutions that have produced those discourses. And I suppose you're looking at them and the language and ideas we use to think about mental illnesses as kind of really profound, not as like a secondary descriptive thing, but actually something that constructs what we actually think of. Mental illness, mental health, madness, distress, as. And you described that as a constructivist approach. And so to start us off, I was just wondering if you could maybe kind of explain what that means and and what that approach encompasses and, and sort of why you wanted to take that approach. Definitely. So from the outset, when I started writing
0: this book, I knew that I wanted to take a radical political approach. And I think at the beginning, Especially because I started writing um, around 2019, 2020, um, where I felt like the mental health kind of conversation was at quite a different point. Um, At the beginning, that kind of meant looking at some of the kind of um, disproportionality and inequalities in mental health. So, for example, why are black people so much more likely to get schizophrenia diagnosis? Why are we much more likely to be detained under under the Mental Health Act? Why are so many women diagnosed with depression and anxiety? Like these kinds of um, ways that unevenness uh, manifests. And I think as it went on, I realised that to to, to actually genuinely take a radical political approach to mental health, mental illness, mental distress, um, madness, that uh, demanded actually looking at mental health as a social construct. And so, like you said, I, I describe this as the construct constructivist approach, which basically doesn't only ask, you know, why are why does some people's why does some people's mental health manifest in this way or that way, um, but actually, what even is this thing that we call mental health, and actually, how did we come to define it in the way that we define it, and should we take that for granted? So that demanded looking a lot at the anti-psychiatry movement. Um, which was a movement uh, mainly taking place or emerging in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, And anti-psychiatry, as I know that you're aware of, um, was a very kind of broad and sprawling movement. But one of the kind of underlying principles was challenging the very basis of psychiatry or the medical approach to mental health um, and actually asking, you know, the things that we call madness Um, Are they necessarily illogical or irrational in the society that we live in? Um, What uh, what interest does the state have in calling some people mad and other people sane? Um, And basically trying to open up these categories and actually interrogate um, whether the things that we designate as madness or mental illness um, would always be designated as such in in kind of a a different society.
2: Yeah, and you said they're kind of socially constructed and I think most people listening to this will not have this sort of ungenerous understanding of that phrase but some people can take that and think it's kind of saying it's not real and there are sort of tendencies in the anti-psychiatry rhythm, like Thomas Saz, who's like, yeah, mental illness is a myth or mental illness is just the production that sort of a thing that capitalism does and that's not really the tact you're sort of taking.
0: Yeah, definitely. I actually, I used this phrase kind of social construct and constructivist in the introduction. And then I don't use it very much throughout the rest of the book. I don't think I, I kind of get the underlying idea. But I do think, like you say, that phrase, it's very, um, I don't know, it, it reminds me kind of like first year of uni when you're like, well, gender is a construct, race is a construct. And you start realising that everything is kind of a construct. Um, and um, uh, Ian Hacking, the philosopher, writes really interestingly on this in his book, The Social Construction of What, um, which basically kind of questions, well, if everything's a social construct, then what's, what are we actually doing? What are we trying to say when we describe something as a construct? Um, and when I describe mental health, mental illness or madness as a social construct, um, what I'm really getting at is trying to look at how... Do the conditions, the material conditions of our society, how do they construct what we think of as mental illness or madness? And so that's not to say that it doesn't exist um, in the same way that, you know, I I, I don't agree with the statement that like race doesn't exist as a black person, because I know that my experience as a racialized person in the world, like that is real as a material experience. Um, But it's kind of trying to point towards the idea that maybe in a different world these categories would look very different some might completely cease to exist um and yeah trying to get at the fact that these aren't kind of natural objective biological facts um as we're often led to believe
2: yeah and like we're both kind of doing it already a little bit where there's sort of like mental illness mental health madness that kind of speaks to that as well that different terms come with different I guess implicit meanings and associations and sort of histories and I think it's it's tricky to know which one to go with but also I think it's kind of fine to switch between the different ones with that sort of caveat I mean how how does that sort of swap in between different that kind of how does that sort of point to what you're talking about here
0: it's so messy. That's <laughs> another thing I agonized over during the writing process and really flip-flopped loads throughout writing about whether to say madness. Like obviously, for you know, I, I look at specifically in chapter one, um, the origins of the asylum system or mental hospitals, mental institutions, um, and the word mad. Um, or the word insanity, like, that was the language that was used. And that, again, taking this constructivist approach, that language describes stuff that actually you can't just swap in mental illness or mental health, because that that now, that has a very different meaning, like, that's come to be in a very different historical context. And then, obviously, some people um, see the word madness as a slur. Some people have reclaimed that term. Um, But then, like you say, with the anti-psychiatry movement, which um, the psychiatrist Thomas Zaz is often most associated with. You know, he, his book was called The Myth of Mental Illness. Like he believed that mental illness did not exist. Um, and that ideology was taken up uh, across the anti across different sections of the anti-psychiatry movement, but also, um, Across the psychiatric survivor movement, which was made up of people um, that we might call patients, but often called themselves survivors, um, and the idea that actually the term mental illness was pathologizing was part of kind of this the psychiatric stigma and oppression that people were trying to shake off and resist. Like that was really powerful, and and some people really don't you know really don't like the term mental illness, um, and it doesn't doesn't personally make sense for them. And so but then other people see the term mental illness as giving gravitas (laughs) to their experiences. So that's something that I grappled with loads Um, and never I say this in the introduction, never found a satisfactory term to actually describe the subject matter. I think these are all um, terms that can be weaponized in certain ways, um, terms that some people like, some people don't like. Um, and they also all describe quite different things. You know, some people prefer mental distress, but obviously lots of people are categorised as mad or mentally ill who actually aren't in distress necessarily. So I kind of, um, I say madness slash mental illness throughout the book, but acknowledge that, like, it's, it's a kind of messy gras- a grasping towards an idea. And I kind of hope that readers um, are forgiving um and kind of approach that in in good faith. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the thing you say about um Thomas Sazz and this idea that like mental illness does not exist, that that's definitely something that I've I grapple with a lot throughout the book and the ways that um this idea can be really sometimes can be used in really political, leveraged in really radical and political ways, but also I think can be leveraged in ways that are um. Also
2: oppressive. Yeah, I quite like illness, mental illness. I think maybe my association with socialist patient collective that we'll probably talk about a bit later makes me gravitate towards that. But I was interested. You said a couple of moments ago that you sort of started writing this in 2019 and 2020, and we're a couple of years later now, and you're saying that maybe things have slightly changed and the discourse around these questions is in a slightly different place. And I, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk about what you meant by that and maybe more generally, we can get into the sort of the different tendencies about talking about these questions in a sort of in the UK context, but I guess more specifically in the kind of mainstream, what we might even think of as kind of hegemonic UK discourse. Yeah. So to rephrase, like where, 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 where did you feel things were at when you started writing the book? So when
0: I started writing, I feel like we were really at the peak or maybe just kind of coming down from the peak of like mental health awareness discourse. Like that was really big. You know, we all just need to speak up, reach out like it's time to talk. We've got to break the stigma. I feel like Matt Haig was still like a bestseller around that time. Um, It felt that conversations about mental health were really, really focused on this idea of awareness. And I point out in the book, I say awareness of what, like, I feel like we rarely ever would question that. Um, What is the knowledge that is being produced and circulated as objective mental health knowledge under the guise of awareness? But I also feel like the conversation was very, it was very white, very middle class, very um, individualistic. I feel like the voices we'd often hear from, we could only hear from um, voices who were, you know, quote unquote, recovered um, people speaking from the podium of, you know, sanity, rationality. And, yeah, it, it really felt that in the publishing space, especially, it was all individual stories or kind of memoir. People who had come out of the other side. And while I think there's something really important in, in that kind of storytelling, um, it really felt that there wasn't much linking up between different people's experiences and actually taking a broader social and political approach to mental health. And so at that stage around 2019, I really felt, okay, I I just actually, it felt like to even bring race into the conversation and talk about, you know, how do black people experience mental distress, madness, mental illness differently? That felt like it was already kind um, kind of pushing the bounds. And there was uh, Dr. Samara Linton and Rihanna Walcott's anthology, The Colour of Madness, came out, I think, probably 2018, which looked at, at race and mental health. But other than that, I felt like in that mainstream publishing space, there just wasn't much that teased out how different domains of oppression interact with mental health. So that's kind of the context that I was within when I started writing. But I do think the conversation is now... has now moved on. Like, I feel like these things now feel a bit more like common sense, like common knowledge. I think that that definitely has changed. Like, there's more discussion, especially around the Mental Health Act. I think it's Black people are five times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act. I think NSUN, the National Survivor User Network, which, for transparency, I'm a trustee at, I should probably say that, um, they're doing really incredible work, um, I think, that's really linked up with abolitionist organizing and groups and there's more of an understanding now actually post 2020 we've started to um see like prison abolition police abolition talked about more in the mainstream i think that has allowed more conversations around the mental health system you know we've got groups like the campaign for psych abolition which are linking up again prison abolition with coercion detainment incarceration um, and so I feel I feel like the the conversation is has has slightly changed, um, and I also think that conversations about neurodiversity um, are much more mainstream, much more commonplace, also much more co-opted. Um, but I think that that feels like more it interacts more with the mental health conversation than I think it did at the time that I started writing.
2: Yeah, and it is I do find the awareness stuff really interesting, and I appreciate the kind of nuanced. Uh, tact you take within the book, I think. Like, I mean, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about with that. One of them that you're kind of alluding to there is the sort of unspoken outgroup of those discussions, like anxiety, depression, crack on, talk about it, but then perhaps more acute episodes of psychosis or schizophrenia or dissociation or what, whatever kind of specific thing it is that are still. I guess out of that conversation. Like it's there still seems to be like a kind of
1: that's mm-hmm.
2: still too much for that kind of thing. Like you have the mental health awareness and then that's that still seems like medicalized or kind of institutionalized in a in a very different way. Um so that's one thing, but I'm also interested in the sort of period of when this happened and, and when it emerged, because it seems not coincidental that it's kind of come in the wake of the kind of assumption of austerity is the baseline in British politics. Um, and as there's a kind of rolling back of all these services and access to services, um, specifically kind of access to mental health services, this huge this kind of surge in a discourse around awareness. And I was wondering how you feel like those two tendencies go together. And if you think they kind of operate in tandem.
0: Yeah. So on the first question, I feel like it's really important to link this to capitalism, which is something that I tried to consistently do throughout the book. Like, how does this actually relate to um, the question of whose bodies or I say in the book body minds to kind of look at the two together? Whose body minds are exploitable and who can sell their labour and who is actually disruptive? to the interests of capital. And I think that's a big thing with this like mental health awareness conversation which centers around depression and anxiety, you know. I think um this is something again around 2019 I remember Hannah Jane Parkinson a writer at the Guardian wrote a really long piece kind of getting at some of these things at like the fact she has a diagnosis of bipolar um the fact that actually some of the stuff that she does when she's experiencing you know what they'd call a manic episode is not stuff (laughs) it's not stuff you can just open up and speak out about because people react like people react really weirdly like people see it as you know what you know we'd see as quote real madness real legitimate madness um which is a different thing to talking about how you feel low or can't get out of bed like that is going to have a different response Um, And I think it is important to link that to the fact that depression and anxiety, you know, at least as it's talked about in the mental health conversation, it's often talked about as something, you know, like that you can pick yourself back up from, um, something that's almost just kind of a part of contemporary life. um, And as long as you can kind of get on with things and get to work, you know, like it's okay to talk about it. Whereas I think it is important um, to think about how people with diagnoses um, of schizophrenia, of bipolar, uh, of uh, dissociative identity disorder. You know, a lot of these diagnoses and experiences that fall under these categories are things that are very hard to um, assimilate back in to a uh, capitalist society. Um, it's very hard to go to work if you're experiencing an altered state. Um, and so it's not really seen as, or it's not really amenable to the kind of breaking the stigma mental health conversation Um, and a lot of these a lot of people who have these experiences um, are also uniquely criminalized in a different way you know depression anxiety are not as criminalized as categories which again I think represents the ways that they can be very disruptive to capital and so yeah I think it's important to acknowledge that many of these experiences it's not only that they've been left out of the mental health conversation like they kind of can't be brought into a like neoliberal awareness conversation like it's it's not really compatible with the idea of mental health awareness or recovery that the state um i think would kind of
2: wants us to to accept um and then there was the second part yeah i mean, I mean the second part i mean i, I think I guess it's maybe like what Mark Fisher would call like the kind of privatization of stress in a way. Like, it's, just, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that you have this way, you know, post 08, you have this wave of kind of austerity politics, which says the state shouldn't provide basic services to people. And instead, you have the kind of charity sector, you have the kind of workplace, maybe sort of HR culture. You, you have these different kind of private entities that step in and provide discourses and provide services about like what mental illness is and what madness is. And it probably links to what you're saying as well, it definitely links to what you're saying there about like what is and isn't permitted in that conversation is then of course going to defer to the sort of priorities of the institutions providing that discourse, you know, like how amenable are different kind of states of being related to your capacity to kind of be exploited or not. And then how does that structure, how we then talk about these things seems pretty you know important
0: yeah i think that our understandings of um mental health have massively shifted uh in line with economic changes um and in line with neoliberalism and austerity like you mentioned like the theorist mark fisher writes in capitalist realism about um what he calls the privatization of stress um and this is kind of the idea that over time um as governments have privatised, you know, businesses, public services. They also have... We've also privatised our idea um, of stress. Uh, And the journalist, Tim Adams, looks at this as well and looks at... um, He looks at, like, the number of strike days um, that took place in the 1970s and he charts... um, the ways that the strike days have obviously gradually decreased in the UK, whereas the number of working days lost to, quote, stress-related illness have increased exactly in line with the decrease in strike days, which is kind of anecdotal. Um, but at the same time, I think there's really something in that, in that we see we're much more ready to think about things as personal personal stress, um, personal illness, personal uh, problems, Rather than political ones that we're able to actually organize around. Um, And I think, yeah, you see this, you know, the first half of the 20th century, we still had these giant mental hospitals all across the UK, which had been um, set up in the 19th century. Um, And then the second half of that century, you know, you see uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Enoch Powell as well, I think, was very at the forefront of um, deinstitutionalization, getting rid of these institutions, which obviously from a disability justice perspective, like we know that this is ultimately a win. But at the same time, we can see that the state's, um, this ideology of that the state has nothing to do with madness, mental illness, like that ideology is, is still very much there. Like it's not a coincidence that neoliberal governments, um, we're doing this, and so at the time that that happened, you do see this, this shift um, in psychiatry. Uh, so I think it's 1980. You get the DSM-3, which is the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which has the list of all of the mental disorders, as they call it. Um, this the DSM-3 completely shifted from a very psychoanalytic approach to a real illness based um, model of mental health. Um, which was very much, you know, these are kind of individual, I don't know if they used the word disease at the time, but that it was a disease model. These are individual diseases or disorders um, that are biologically, you know, we just need to find the biomarkers, like there is a biological um, foundation to these things, um, which really mirrors, you know, I think that's that's a neoliberal approach, it's a neoliberal ideology, the idea that it's an individual problem inside of you. Um, And so I think you know, as austerity has continued, I feel like this approach of it's individual, it's something that you can only remedy, you know, it could be, you know, through quote biological means like meds, but I think increasingly we're also seeing, you know, therapy speak so, so ubiquitous now, the idea that, you know, you shouldn't date a guy if he's not in therapy and like all of this stuff, which is, you know, again, like anecdotal stuff um that people say offhand but it does feel um like a really really central part of the cultural imagination right now that everyone should be in therapy you know we need to have the mindfulness apps like everyone should be doing headspace like um you know you need to you need to go to the doctor um, and get meds which all of these things as we know right like yoga etc all of these things can be very good for us that like they can work they might be um they might be pathways to healing but the emphasis is always on these individual things Um, and I think that individual responsibility thing is so neoliberal and yeah a thing that I'm really really trying to push beyond in the book.
2: Yeah so getting back to the book I mean it's a really great like you've done this really wonderful job where you've like brought together all of the different I guess kind of counter-hegemonic formations and social and political movements that throughout I suppose mainly sort of the sort of latter stages of the 20th century or second half of the 20th century have been uh, sort of in contact with these institutions and the discourses we're talking about sort of historically in different ways and kind have of come up with well in in response to the kind of problems that those institutions have caused them for their life have, have kind of produced a lot of different sort of political um theories and practices that provide different ways of thinking about it and um, you've done a really wonderful job of bringing them together for us to kind of make use of now and maybe just kind of could you just kind of introduce some of the different historical currents that you you really wanted to kind of bring together here and and maybe even talk a little bit about why you felt like it it was a good time to bring those together I mean I think you're maybe starting to get at it already but it does feel like you've provided a a toolkit in a way or, or a kind of collection of sources to then look to to, to address this problem that we're talking about like how do we now respond to this really entrenched neoliberal idea of mental illness that just doesn't work for like so many people and kind of comes with all these problems how, how did you sort of go about that task of kind of bringing this stuff together
0: uh, I think it was really messy <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think I couldn't really find many other examples and I, you know I'm I'm sure that you know, they are out there, but I, I did struggle, I think, to find examples of places that or, you know, other books that were trying to bring together all of these different things, which often are actually in conflict. You know, a lot of these movements have certain ideologies um, that are in conflict with one another. And so, yeah, I tried to bring together a lot of different things and throughout the writing process, you know, tried to resolve some some of those conflicts, but also did accept some of them maybe are not reconcilable, you know, within a 180 page book, like maybe that's, you know, not the task of this book. And so I try to lay out some of these tensions and just say, they're there. We need to try and like hold together in solidarity. But yeah, some of the different movements um, and currents that I'm trying to bring together are anti-psychiatry, the anti-psychiatry movement, which, as I mentioned, kind of had this big Explosion in the 1960s and 70s, especially in the UK and the US. Uh, again, you know, that movement that approach was challenging um, the very basis of psychiatry, which sometimes meant challenging the idea of mental illness um, as kind of uh, psychiatry's kind of subject or target. But also, you know, you have uh we talked about Thomas Zaz, who was, you know, right wing, but you've also got people like Franco Bazaglia, um, who was left-wing, um, had been in prison before, and actually, you know, in, in the context of Italy, where he was living, he was looking at um, mental hospitals and saying, these are prisons, like, <laughs> they look the same, you know, Goffman writes about total institutions, he was like, these are total institutions, um, and he could see, you know, people go in, and actually, unlike prison, a lot of people go in and actually can can never leave, um, you know, there's no there's no sentence. And so uh, I wanted to bring some of those currents kind of into a discussion, a contemporary discussion. But I also, it was really, really crucial for me to take a disability justice approach and to take, for people who aren't familiar with kind of um, the origins of disability justice, uh, Sins Invalid, which are a collective in North America, they uh, laid out um, what they call the 10 Principles of Disability Justice Um, And this is kind of in some ways responding to some of the shortcomings or limitations of the disability rights movement, um, which, again, was kind of 1960s to 1980s. And saying, you know, we need to be intersectional. Um, We need to be abolitionist. We need to have cross disability solidarity, cross impairment solidarity, cross movement solidarity. You know, many of the um, thinkers who produced the 10 principles of disability justice were people of colour. They were queer some were psychiatric survivors. And so, yeah, this disability justice approach felt really, really crucial to me um, because in the book, I, I talk a bit about how anti-psychiatry in some ways was was quite oppressive in its, its um, discussions of disability. So disability justice is really important. And then um, abolition as well, towards the end of the book, um, I think it becomes more explicit, but drawing on the prison abolitionist movement, you know, looking at the organizing and thinking of psych abolitionists, that felt really important. Um, and while obviously there's a very long legacy um, of abolitionist work, it did feel actually that there's there's kind of been a renewed, a resurgence of interest um, and organizing in this space. And so that felt like a really important thread to bring in. And, you know, I quote from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, Mariam Carber, these things felt really important to explicitly link up To mental health. So, those are some of the currents. The psychiatric survivor movement, as well, which um, was kind of in and around the anti psychiatry movement and emerged, I think, mainly people kind of say it it most formally kind of emerged in like the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, these ideas were not coming from professionals like anti psychiatry was, you know, they were coming from below, um, from people who actually had experience of these systems so that felt really important as well and also as linked to the disability thing um the neurodiversity movement that felt really crucial um even though as I mentioned there are some tensions I think especially between some of the ideas of the neurodiversity movement and anti-psychiatry I think there are some tensions there but in the book yeah I attempt to kind of bring these things all together and have kind of put them in one place and put them in conversation with each other and say, actually, what are the common threads? You know, what are, for example, I think in health communism, uh, Beatrice Adler-Bolton and R.T. Vierkant's book, I think they do a really good job of they talk about, you know, the surplus class, which is drawing from um, a term that Karl Marx used. And when they talk about the surplus class, you know, they're talking about they are talking about people who are sick and disabled. Um, mad, mentally ill, but also actually this group includes loads of people who are not seen as exploitable by the labour market or not seen as amenable to capital. So that includes people who are criminalised, people who are in prison. And so I think my book um, chimes quite well with, with their idea there in that I'm trying to link up kind of all of these different groups that are affected by common sources of oppression and trying to say kind of how can we come together and, and hold together in solidarity
2: yeah and there's the sort of implicit threat as well that they write really well about if you're always at risk of being placed in the category of the surplus class and that's then used as a kind of threatening device for those that aren't already in it um yeah like, we're yeah. always yeah. sorry go on
0: I was just gonna say we're always at risk and I feel like loads of you know a lot of us are always trying to scramble out and this is something a kind of another current that's in the book um in one chapter I kind of look at the gay rights movement and you know how the gay rights movement um wanted to be taken you know they wanted homosexuality to no longer be categorized as an illness you know that makes complete sense like you want to get out of being pathologized and being medicalized but I also tried to tease out how some of the argument some of the rhetoric um actually ultimately was about distancing queer people from mad people um and from sick people um and saying you know there's nothing wrong with us we should be we should be allowed rights we shouldn't be compuls you know we shouldn't have compulsory treatment um like those guys over there um and so i try i try to kind of look at kind of what comes about um When we are trying to scramble out of the surplus class, or trying to scramble away from the oppression that that we face, and yeah, I I tried, especially in that chapter, I tried to kind of put forward a a a way of thinking about you know how how can we hold together, um, and how can we kind of get free together.
2: I'm trying to remember whereabouts in the book you in you have a chapter where you kind of talk about the sort of politics of disavowal that sort of speaks to some of the challenges of like building this broad coalition of people in different predicaments but also kind of in and adjacent to the category of surplus in different ways and and some of the challenges that can be presented there are kind of yeah you describe it as a sort of politics of disavowal could you maybe explain what that refers to for people and and maybe how that is a problem that we need to be aware of and need to kind of overcome in 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 kind of this this kind of developing um work Mm.
0: Yeah, so I use this term disavow. I think I got it um, from the autistic activist Lydia XZ Brown, who's in the US. And I think they're quite well placed as kind of an autistic activist in disabled, but also mad kind of movements. Um, but yeah, so I use this term disavow to describe what I see as like having sometimes taken place historically, but also now, where we try to oppress people or sometimes try to separate ourselves or distance ourselves from other oppressed people in order to kind of uh, assimilate or lessen our, our, our own oppression and so i kind of you know talk about kind of the standard examples that i think we're like familiar with now like oh like i'm not like other girls or like other black people you know these kinds of things but actually how you can see them play out politically sometimes in our movements for example you know one thread which we, we touched on in the anti-psychiatry movement was the idea like, um, this Thomas Zaz's big idea is like a mental illness is not real illness. Um, and like, you know, you get this idea that comes from that of like people would sometimes say, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing actually wrong with us as mad people or mentally ill people. Like it's society that's sick. Um, and we're just the sane logical ones actually within like a, a mad world to reference the title of my book and I think that um you know this idea can sometimes be used in ways that really um discounts the work of the disability rights and disability justice movements like disabled thinkers have been saying for a really long time um that disability is socially constructed Um, And if you're familiar with the social model, you know, that's a big part of it is the idea that disability is not an inherent defect within the body. Um, Society disables us through disabling barriers. And, you know, Peter Sedgwick um, wrote about this in his book Psychopolitics in the 1980s. The idea that actually all illness is constructed, Um, you know, if in the same way, like if, you know, depression makes you less likely to be able to get a job and make money and you know that that's part of why it's defined as an illness like that applies for many other illnesses physical illnesses and so i think that to say you know mental illness is a construct but physical illness is real yeah it it, it really discounts the the work of of disabled thinkers and organizers um who have actually been arguing the opposite and i think like I said in that chapter, the idea that um, gay rights activists were using—and I don't, you know, I, I don't think it was across the whole movement—but I do think it's it it was quite prevalent—is this idea, you know, we're not sick or mad, so <laughs> we don't want homosexuality to be in the DSM. Which, like I said, I I really I completely understand where that impulse came from, and I think it, you know, it was successful in its aim. Um, But at the same time, there was an opportunity there to say no sick or mad person should be coerced um, or subject to compulsory treatment or institutionalisation. Like, why just try to take ourselves um, out of the grouping rather than hold together in solidarity? Yeah, I think you sometimes see the idea also with um, with uh, sometimes I've seen kind of psychiatric survivors say um, when I was sectioned, I was treated like I was a criminal. Like I've done, no, I've done nothing wrong. Like, I, you know, I, I haven't committed a crime. Um, and so, again, we can see the opportunity here to actually link up in solidarity with prisoners and the prison abolitionist movement and actually say maybe, you know, no one should, no one should be um, incarcerated. Maybe we can make that argument instead. Um, and so, yeah, I make this case against um, disavow and say, actually, yeah, how can we uh, look? across difference and say okay like we're not necessarily the same um you know I experience madness or mental illness you're physically disabled or you're criminalized but actually what do we share um and what are the structures that we're all that we can all collectively try to tear down
2: you're also really clear that you're not kind of like in search of like one overriding singular theory of madness mental illness and and actually that like part of the process of kind of what you're inviting here and what you're kind of contributing to is that we're gonna have different models that contextually respond in different ways to different political struggles. And part of the challenge is to kind of hold that together in a in a kind of solidaristic movement that I think is really important. I I mean it's probably I think it's maybe a tendency I identify myself sometimes of like wanting to go for that one thing. And I think especially when one feels unwell, and one when put, someone is experiencing acute episodes of distress. Like there is a tendency to want an authoritative discourse because it feels comforting, and it feels like I need to know the answer that makes me not feel like this anymore. And mm. I think it's really good that you kind of tease that out. That like that's just that's a bit of a trap in a way. Yeah,
0: I, I say this in the book. I think it's a complete distraction. And I think that the the conversations sparked by Zaz in like the second half of the 20th century um, are, are still ongoing. Also, you know, when you see like mental health professionals like arguing with one another one another on Twitter. Um, and when you see but also on the left I think you see some of these arguments a lot Um, it takes up a lot of time and headspace this thing of like what is it like what is mental health Um, is it just society and capitalism is it a real illness like I don't know I I think that it's a real distraction because um, not just in a kind of like uh, liberal like pluralistic way of like we can all just like have our own you know but I do think that it's it's always going to be personal, um, dependent on cultural context or hyperlocal context. Um, and I think that the search for like an authoritative kind of ontological, you know, like what is the objective internal scientific nature of it? Like, is it an illness or not? I think like That idea is also really seeped in whiteness and colonial thinking, the idea that we can have an objective scientific truth that tells us what it is. Mm. Um, And I think what we should be looking for is for people to be able to make their own meaning um, out of what it is, Um, because yeah even on a personal level I've had times where I'm like this feels bodily like <laughs> this yeah. this does feel like illness actually and I've also had times where it's very it's very very clear that there's kind of kind of external forces and it feels more social but I think the biological social thing is also a false binary mm-hmm. and I talk about that as well the idea that we you know we can say oh but it's not really a mental illness if you're in poverty like clearly that's the reason why and it's like well. Poverty also causes like loads of illness. Like poverty um, and lack of clean air correlates with asthma. Like you know, there are so many physical things that have the same thing. So I I think regardless of whether we choose to see it as illness or not, um, the most important thing is to politi- to take this political approach. Like as you you reference with SPK, like they used the idea of illness, but they were also like illness is political. Um, yeah. illness is a fact of life under capitalism um but then there are also groups who don't take the illness approach um and they still politicize it so to me that's the most important thing not this um trying to find like a grand theory that um applies to everyone and like finally explains it
2: yeah and a friend of mine said something to me once and he's very in politics is kind of like solidarity is always way better when it's like you're a verb and you're like doing instead of kind of looking for kind of categories in a way. And I think that's, that sort of holds some truth here as well. Um, Yeah. I think maybe for like the kind of final part of this conversation, I I want to ask you a little bit about some of the different groups that you've already mentioned here. And I should say as well, uh, just to kind of plug previous conversations, there are SPK who we're talking about if people are interested in that, there's a whole episode with mentioned, Beatrice um and same with um Bisaglia and the kind of Italian um critical psychiatry movement but one of the movements that you talk about in your book that I know a bit less about and have not spoken to people as much about is the psychiatric um survivors movement and the kind of patient organizing movement um and I, I especially kind of <laughs> I know I don't know as much about it because so much of it took place in the UK, and it seems like a really vivid part of this history. And I, I was just wondering if you could maybe introduce people to some of the different groups that you're aware of and, and looked at in the book, and and maybe to kind of finish off, we can look at them and the Italian model, and kind of what are some of the actual things that they did that kind of provide us with instruction for the kind of ongoing political uh, project we kind of you've outlined in your book and we are kind of talking about here. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah so what so what were some of the groups that you think people should know about in in the psychiatric survival
0: um, well one caveat I should give is that uh, kind of in the history of institutionalization there were actually kind of a few groups and things that sprung up like literally in like the 18th 19th centuries which often aren't kind of um, acknowledged as part of that history um, but. As I said kind of you know the 1970s 1980s like that is a time where we see this kind of big explosion of you know what are sometimes called service user groups um, but also often called psychiatric um, survivors Um, and yeah in the UK I mean one that I looked at um, was the mental patients union which I think originally actually sprung up um, in Scotland um, but then another one sprung up um, in London, I think at Paddington Day Hospital, um, and this was, you know, a group of mental patients, as they were called at the time, who just came together and said, like, we have to change these conditions, like from within, like from within the the context of an institution. Um, and I remember reading, I wish I had the details, but I do remember reading that it was like a really, really old guy. He might've been like 80 or 90, um, who first kind of had the idea for it. And he'd been very involved in like, um, like workers union movements before, um, in a hospital in Scotland. Um, and yeah, mental patients came together, um, and drew up kind of a list of demands, um, and there's a really funny document actually from from this group in Scotland who I think they wrote something like, um, "It would probably be quicker and easier to write the things that were that were right about this institution than listing all of the things that are wrong with it." um but yeah from this kind of mental patients union movement we you know you would see lists of demands drawn up that were like um, an end to electroconvulsive therapy um an end to like sectioning um detainment under the mental health act things like this and i think that that was really interesting and really radical um also seeing it kind of there's there's something very explicitly anti-capitalist about coming together within the structure of a union and being like in some ways, like you know, we can the the dynamic of boss worker like we can see a similar dynamic here um, as people who are resident or held at this institution. um So I think the Mental Patients Union was really interesting, and if I am correct, I think that they had a squat in Camden as well, where they would host people who were in crisis. And then there's groups like Survivors Speak Out. That was another psychiatric survivor. Um, group that was really um, big in the latter half of the 20th century um, campaign against psychiatric oppression. The Hearing Voices Network is a really was very influential to me, like when I first started learning about their work. Um, and it's a group of people with experience of hearing voices um, or seeing visions um, or kind of yeah, seeing or hearing things that others do not, I think is how they phrase it. And um, and this is like a now a really big peer support network um, that basically tries to take um, a more neutral, or less pathologizing approach to the experience um, of seeing or hearing things that others don't. Um, so, you know, some people who are involved in the Hearing Voices Network say, actually, I enjoy hearing my voices. Um, it's like having company. Or I remember hearing one person saying, um, my voices remind me in the morning when I've forgotten to like pack my lunch or when I've forgotten my keys, (laughs) things like this. Um, but also obviously it's not like this for everyone, for some people, it, you know, they come to accept their voices. It's quite a neurodiversity approach of it's, it's just a part of me. Um, and actually taking antipsychotics and these really powerful medications for me, they, you know, they don't work or, um, you know, I don't want to take them and, I accept my voice as a part of me. And then other people, you know, take approaches like, okay, so what are the voices saying? Like, maybe we should listen to the content. Is there something there that I need to work with or I need to be in dialogue with? Um, which is very counter to the psychiatric approach of, you know, voices are a symptom that must be eradicated. Like, you just have to get rid of them at whatever cost. So I think hearing hearing voices is also really, really, um, really interesting. I think they're doing really good work. Recovery in the bin is a service user collective um, that I look at in my chapter on capitalist work. Um, I really love what they're doing as well. You know, they look at this idea of recovery, which has been so co-opted under neoliberalism. Um, and actually, you know, they argue that recovery is impossible in our current conditions, um at least for most of us. <laughs> like, how can you recover in a in a world that is keeping you sick? And they kind of they they really push against um this, this idea uh, of recovery. But then, you know, there are other groups that are newer springing up here and in the U S. So as I mentioned, campaign for psych abolition, they're doing really, really good mutual aid stuff. Um, project let's in the U S um, are really amazing. They yeah, are also doing a lot of explicitly linking stuff up with disability. And then you've got kind of, um, like non-carceral first response services. There are quite a few of these in the US, which basically, you know, will try to respond to mental health crisis without the involvement of any police. Mm. Um, So these kinds of things. I think these things are are really exciting. Whilst like kind of the Trias model and things like this that I talk about in the book, I think that they're really um, informative as well. I think these peer support and kind of um, things that are led by mad and mentally ill people, um are like really exciting examples of ways that actually we're saving and caring for one another in the absence of
2: adequate state care mm. yeah definitely do you want to talk a bit more about the Trieste model as well and um, i'll put a link in the in, in the sort of the edit so people can go back and listen to the sort of full uh interview um with john for about the the sort of more thorough detailed history of, of that model but I'd be interested to hear like what it is about that period of history that appeals to you and kind of what what attracts you to it in, in terms of like now because and I, I'll complicate it slightly and sort of say we've one thing that's kind of run through this whole conversation is like the question of deinstitutionalization and there's this funny context with deinstitutionalization where in Italy they're trying to close all these institutions and bring in a kind of community care model and as you've said in the UK we sort of do something kind of similar but it's kind of quite partial and the community care centres aren't really funded properly and we still have very kind of predatory institutions that as you say still institutionalise huge numbers of people I think uh, I might get this wrong but it's like 50,000 people a year in this in mm-hmm. the UK. Um, and so we have this funny thing of Obviously, we're kind of anti-austerity, and we want funding, but also we don't want to just funnel it into these institutions. And maybe the final thing I ask you about is kind of what does a kind of reclamation of a deinstitutional politics look like now, with the added complication of sort of um, its legacy in this, in in the UK context specifically, of being so closely associated with an austerity politics.
0: Yeah, so to talk about Basalia, I feel like people should definitely listen to your episode on it because the John Foote book is so detailed. I'm I'm just thinking, like, I'm not going to do justice to, <laughs> to this up. topic. Um, but yeah, as I said, Basalia um, had been imprisoned for anti-fascist activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, I believe it was in the 1970s, you know, he, he could see that asylums or mental hospitals um, function very much like prisons. Um, And, you know, taking our kind of anti-capitalist abolitionist approach, like, we can see that, right? They're both institutions that basically try to separate out people who, um, people who are not um, seen as profitable or don't serve the interests of capitalism. Um, They're trying to separate them out from the rest of society. Uh, And so... He could see that. Um, and he became, I don't know what they would have called it, the superintendent, maybe. Oh, yeah, superintendent. Or like- direct or asylum yeah. director, yeah.
2: um,
0: maybe in Trieste. And uh his approach was basically, we need to dismantle <laughs> these institutions. Mm. Um, and you know, while dismantling the hospital, you know, there's beautiful stories in, in John Foote's book about you know the patients assisting in like breaking down the walls and things like this Um, and what we've been left with, you know, there was Bazzaglia's Law, which was passed I think, was it passed in 1980, I think Um, and what we're left with in Trieste, in the northeast of Italy, is this system um, which doesn't rely on incarceration or coercion and I think it's important to state that like these things do happen very very rarely in Trieste Like, I, I think it is important to To be honest, that it's not a utopia where like everything's been fixed.
2: Um,
0: But that it's at at really, really minuscule, minuscule numbers. Um, And, you know, there's an emphasis on complexity. You know, I I quote a journalist um, who went to Trieste um, to kind of visit the services and see what was going on there. And, you know, he talks to a staff member who says, Um, When the institution is hard and has really hard rules and is violent to people like that creates like an atmosphere that is hard and violent and it makes you feel it internally. Like it exacerbates your distress. Um, And actually, when um, these spaces soften and they, uh, you know, take the approach of dialogue. I think they talk about this taking a dialectical approach, um, which I think they call endless negotiation. Um, which is like I don't know I think that's really interesting to me and again it links to this idea right of like we need the blanket we need to know like what is the answer what is mental illness what is it I think we sometimes see this um, similar approach when we look at um, okay people are like what is the alternative then tell us what is it Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge the alternatives are really messy and complicated because mental health and mental health crisis like That's really messy and complicated. Um, And it's different for everyone. And like you're going to need a different solution for person A to like the next person who comes along um, because we all have such different contexts and life experiences. And so that's one thing I find really interesting about the approach of Trieste is this really personally tailored endless negotiation how can we find the right outcome like what is right for you um if you if diagnosis makes sense to you like you can have one but also we're not going to put a diagnosis on you um and also things like um you know overnight stay is possible but um this idea of segregation like they're really trying to push against um segregation so if you want to bring a pet to stay overnight with you or if you want to bring your child or you know these things like that's fine there's no hard line between the community um and the service um and stuff like staff not wearing uniforms um and you know um the services being in residential streets uh and we see similar approaches in what are called crisis houses here in the UK um where again they're kind of like residential um non-medical spaces but yeah I think, that trieste is just a really good example and i don't think it's like the only answer the only approach but i i think it's a great example to point towards to say actually things could be another way um and they are working another way definitely and then there was a second part to your question but i can't well
2: i think it kind of took uh, i i just wanted to maybe contextualize it within kind of austerity politics and i think maybe like you're already doing it there that like the endless negotiation, like we need, we need like an a ubiquity of services that are that take that approach as opposed to a different approach. But I just think it's maybe worth being wary of of the kind of the history in this country of like, like sometimes people can be hesitant at the idea of like closing, you know, the idea of closing hospitals, for example. Like, the people are organising to stop that, mm. <laughs> you know, and it's that maybe adds a slightly different nuance here. But I think you're kind of the way in which you're explaining what the kind of endless negotiation the sort of person centered treatment, I think that's the way to lead through that tricky... Yeah,
0: I think it links, but I think it is is one of those tensions, another tension that you see a lot on the left is especially, I think, when I started writing, like, this line of, like, we just need more funding, we just need, like, expansion, we just need, like, more funding for mental health services. Very, you know, like makes sense as a, an anti-austerity line like that's consistent with, with other anti-austerity lines. Um but actually when you look at you know when you listen to what psych survivors are saying um and even people who are on waiting lists like any like most people who have had even like a bit of engagement with the system kind of know that it's not necessarily just a funding situation. Um, and I think that um Leah Ben Mosh, you know, writes about this really interestingly. The fact that when deinstitutionalization happened, like that was like one of the biggest abolitionist successes, um, in history. Like it actually happened. Like that. That's a concrete thing that has happened in history. But at the same time, lots of people, you know, were left um vulnerable to the forces of capitalism and neoliberalism, and you know, ended up homeless. Um, ended up not being able to get a job. And so I think it is that thing of being like, um, I I say this towards the end of the book, like we often have this thing of like, is it more funding or is it dismantle? Like, which one is it? As if that's kind of, that's like a a binary, like they're mutually exclusive. Um, When I think an abolitionist approach would say, you know, we need to pump funding and resource into completely transformed approaches, community-controlled approaches, non-carceral approaches. Um, And the question of more resource or
2: dismantling, like, it's both, like, we can do both at the same time. Yeah. Are there any kind of final things you want to go over? Any other kind of final points you want to make or things?
0: No, not that I can think of. Other than just the thing of, like beyond this I think it really is because I think sometimes when we talk about the alternatives right we can point towards all of these different alternatives I think that's a really important point as well that like like you say in any kind of liberated future for mad or mentally ill people there are going to be thousands and thousands of alternatives um and it will be tailored to the individual, tailored to local context, like you can kind of take your pick of what works for you. But equally, I feel like one really important alternative that we often don't talk about is also just creating a world where fewer people are in distress or even get to crisis point. I think often we kind of say like, oh, what are you supposed to do when someone is is kind of really deep in crisis, but actually The vast majority of people who experience mental health crisis, you know, that could have been prevented or their struggles could have been ameliorated at some point before. And so that's the world that I'm trying to build towards is one where far fewer people get to crisis in the first place.